Welcome to Purdy's Podcast. This is a special one-off episode, uh, not intended really for public use, but it's just meant to be a series of notes associated with some slides that I've created for a world civilizations class. Uh, so let's get started. It's about the Renaissance. The Renaissance. Particularly the Renaissance in Italy, not the Northern Renaissance, um, but, but we'll keep to the Italian peninsula. Students, uh, if you please move to slide two, titled The Renaissance, Massive Changes and More of the Medieval Same. For 600 years, historians have debated what exactly the Renaissance was, or for some historians, whether there was a Renaissance at all. Critics of modern developments often point to the Renaissance as a great divergence, uh, a wrong turn and a fork in the road, and refer to the Renaissance as not the Middle Ages plus man or plus humanity, but rather the, hum rather the Middle Ages minus God. So there's this idea that the God-centered universe of the Middle Ages became human-centered in the Renaissance, and it's, sim it's simply not as cut and dried as that. As a matter of fact, while the Renaissance in art, writing, literature, music, uh, was a rediscovery, only possible through a rediscovery of ancient texts by way of the Byzantine Empire, it certainly did not mean that Europe and Italy specifically was rejecting the Christian centrality of the Middle Ages. So really, despite the great changes in visual art that we see, and we're doing our human sculpture garden in class, we see that definitely in three-dimensional art as well, there's still quite a lot of the Middle Ages civilization of Europe that, that stays on. So what makes a Renaissance man, or what makes a Re Renaissance woman? Uh, well, on slide three, which you're on right now, let's talk about what makes the Renaissance man. Well, we speak in ideals. Um, in every civilization, you know, there, there, there is no ideal human being. So, what is this? What is the civilization's ideal? What is the Renaissance civilization's ideal? Um, very few people got to this ideal, certainly, but in the 1400s and into the 1500s in Italy, when we talk about a Renaissance man, we're referring to a person who masters all the branches of art and thought and learning and isn't depending on any outside authority for knowledge or beliefs or tastes. They're the Luomo Universal, to borrow from Roger Davies, the complete man. Uh, pretty hard to capture. We have on the slide here that you're looking at Da Vinci sketch, Vitruvian man, and a detail of Michelangelo's David statue. Um, so we see physical ideal here that's also meant to encompass a philosophical ideal, ideal as well. What makes the Renaissance woman? Well, like I said, we're not out of the Middle Ages. The Renaissance is a rediscovery of ancient texts. It's, it's, a, it's a rebirth of learning from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. 
but women are still consigned to traditional roles in families in Renaissance Italy. So the highest ideal for Renaissance women was to fulfill the role of matriarch, mother or grandmother in the family. It was very difficult for women to get the same kinds of education that patrician or elite Renaissance men were able to get. Yet they were still, this does not mean that there were not Renaissance era women who were fantastic artists and writers. There were. Christine de Paysan, uh, as we move to s- slide number five, we quote her from the Book of the City of Ladies. Christine de Paysan lived from 1364 to 1430. And she says, on the whole, men seem to hold the view that women have never done anything for humankind but bear children and spin wool. But Christine de Pisson was a tremendous woman of letters at the time and, and a respected author. If we move back to slide four, pardon me, then we read about Sister Plotilla Nelly. From 1524 to 1588, which is in the late Renaissance, well into it, She's a self-taught nun who's an artist and the first known female Renaissance painter in Florence. And she herself paints a version of The Last Supper that's certainly not as famous as da Vinci's, but you can see her here in slide slide four. Um, Covers the same subject material and is impressive in its own right. Now moving along... um, I haven't inserted a slide specifically on this point, but let's pause for a second here at slide six and discuss what the causes of the Renaissance were. Well, first, what is the Renaissance? It literally means a rebirth. In Latin, the word would be renatio, R-E-N-A-T-I-O. But this itself is, is a translation or a, a readoption of a Greek word, palingenesis in Greek, which is the spiritual rebirth. Palin, P-A-L-I-N, which is again in Greek, in front of genesis, which is a birth or creation. So to, it's a rebirth. It's a recreation of ancient Greek, ancient Roman civilization only hundreds of years later in Renaissance era Italy. The causes of the Renaissance were still debating this in the 21st century. Certainly the urbanization of Italy has a lot to do with it. There are people living in towns and even small cities concentrated there who have absorbed a surplus of food and supplies from nearby farms such that they can support a specialization of labor. So everybody's not a farmer. There's all kinds of different jobs, different tasks, and different guilds, skilled labor in these towns and cities. And the production of products by these skilled laborers and artisans helps to boost trade between the towns and the cities. This leads to small-scale capitalism and the building of profits based on this surplus of labor and surplus of, of material wealth. 
So you've got people who have the ability to be consumers of art, consumers of literature, to express themselves creatively in, in their free time, in their downtime, because they're not working, 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 working simply to grind out a, substan a subsistence living. They have some time for leisure. The Renaissance Italy has moved away from the overall political dominance of the church. And we start to see parallel political structures develop, secular, non-church political structures. So princes and dukes and lords out in the countryside and in the towns are starting to develop their power independent of the church. The church is in a bit of a crisis. It hadn't done very well in supporting the people during the bubonic plague, the Black Death of the tumultuous 13, 14th century, the 1300s. And now in the 1400s, with people enjoying life here on earth and not so much focused on the life to come, the church was having a hard time reestablishing or burnishing, cleaning, polishing its brand which had been tarnished. Further, with the collapse of the Byzantine Empire, the former Eastern Roman Empire and its capital at Constantinople, which fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, there was a wave of refugees that came from the former Byzantine lands. And a lot of them came to Italy and they brought with them their knowledge and their actual ancient texts in Greek and Hebrew and in Arabic translated from Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And this rediscovery of these ancient texts that had not been seen in Western Europe for some centuries was a source of great excitement for the people of Italy. Everybody was really psyched and wanting to relearn all of these things that had been lost. As Serena of Ancona said, I go to wake the dead. So what was considered to be what were considered to be dead civilizations, the artists, the writers, the thinkers of the Renaissance were going around waking them up and rediscovering them and celebrating them in the Renaissance. So we see lots of things that we hadn't seen in Western Europe for quite some time. So back to slide six, we've got two paintings here. Giotto's on the right, an early Renaissance two-dimensional painter in Italy, and then Simabu on the left, um, a Byzantine era painter. For the medieval mind, realism, capturing the human form, capturing a psychological realism, making people look the way they are in regular life, nobody cared about that. That wasn't something that we were going for in the Middle Ages. But when we turn the page, and it's an argument that we did turn the page, from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, we see a greater emphasis on realism and capturing what life looks like in art. And Giotto on the right is one of the very first two-dimensional painters to invest some realism, to breathe some life into the characters in the painting, in this case, the Virgin Mary with the uh, baby Jesus. Now on to slide seven. Here we are in Florence 
and it's in we're in the early renaissance going into the middle renaissance period in the 1400s and there's a competition um for these beautiful golden doors in the florence baptistry where you know people in in florence christians in florence were baptized and there are two competitors main competitors and you can see students in slide seven and slide eight their bids that they submitted the art that they submitted to win the contract to do all the doors and the subject for this competition between Ghiberti, slide seven and brunelleschi slide eight was to depict a very famous story from the old testament and a scary story but an important story abraham and sarah were hundreds of years old when they by some miracle were able to have isaac their their first son and boy did they love isaac of course miracle child and then one day the angel of the lord came to them and said abraham take isaac to the top of this mountain and bring a knife and wait for further instructions and abraham is freaking out of course um, doesn't want anything happen to isaac but also um, does what he's told takes isaac to the top of the mountain and um, the angel has instructed him to sacrifice isaac human sacrifice to show his devotion love faith and abraham's about to do it and in both of these images class seven and eight you see that abraham in Ghiberti's slide is holding the knife vaguely toward brave young Isaac and the angel swooping in to say, no, 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 stop. Ghiberti wins. Ghiberti wins. You know, the knife isn't that close. Isaac's very brave. Um, the angel is, you know, not having to intercede as much as we're going to see the angel doesn't have as much work cut out for him as we're going to see in brunelleschi slide slide eight brunelleschi abraham's got hold of isaac and he's ready to sacrifice him and the angel of the lord has to grab literally grab abraham's hand and stop him in mid-motion stop him and say no this is not the religion that we have. We're going to do things differently. We're going to leave human sacrifice behind us. We're moving ahead with a, a kinder and gentler monotheism. So Brunelleschi was keeping it very real and lost. Ghiberti keeping it real, but a little less intense and won. Brunelleschi, you know, was disappointed, but he won a pretty nice, and on, on to slide nine class, he won a pretty nice consolation prize. As nerdy as he is, there's a clip here that I've put in, in a text box. Rick Steves um, on the Duomo. The Duomo's the dome. It's in Florence. Um, very tall building in the middle of Florence. You climb up to the top and you get beautiful, beautiful views of the old city. Right. So Brunelleschi, uh, you can watch this clip to get further details. Um, he won the contract to build this fantastically complicated dome of Florence's cathedral. And for the Renaissance period, it was an engineering marvel what he was able to do in constructing this dome. So Brunelleschi, while he lost out on the doors of the baptistry, did very well for himself with the, with the Duomo. 
on to slide 10. Some of you are going to study Donatello for our human sculpture garden. And I highly recommend that you do. Donatello is an early Renaissance, early 1400s, early to mid 1400s sculpture. And what you're looking at here is his um, Mary Magdalene sculpture. And Mary Magdalene, as depicted by Donatello, has had a long and difficult life, you know, full of faith. Uh, she was one of their early followers, Jesus, and um, young at the time. We see her here at the end of a long life, and the details are Donatello's strong point. So in the slide, slide 10, you can see I've, I've captured, I've put into detail the uh, Mary's hands, right? She's captured in this um, deep and meaningful gesture of faith. And her whole body is translated into strong faith. And Donatello captures that marvelously in the sculpture. And she's also, you know, really banged up looking, like very old and decrepit. And life has taken away everything from her. But what's left is this like burning, um, undefeatable faith at the end. Fantastic sculpture. Now the next is more, you know, more Donatello. Got a couple here. St. George on the left, I believe. And then we've got Donatello's David on the right. You're familiar, I'm sure, with Michelangelo's David, who's just like um, kind of burly and tough guy standing up in Florence, staring down all of Florence's enemies. Well, here on slide 11, you've got a teenage David. David famously is a champion of the Israelites who stuns the Philistines champion Goliath, a seven footer, stuns him with a sling and arrow. I'm sorry, um, stone and sling. And then once he's stunned, goes up and beheads him. So you've got the teenage Donatello's David uh, looking very confident. He's got his hat on, his Republican hat. Hats are very important to anti-monarchists throughout history. And here Donatello's David's got his um, uh, hat signifying his support for the Republic. And he's got his sword in one hand and he's, he's got a very dramatic um, angle that he's taking with his hips. And he's kind of crowing over. He's very, very like dramatically standing on top of Goliath's severed head here. So this clip here I've got on slide 11. You'll want to watch if you're studying Donatello for the Human Sculpture Garden. It really goes into very nice detail in only a few minutes about this particular sculpture and Donatello's career in general. Now slide 12, students always love to study Michelangelo's David for the Sculpture Garden. You, lots of Americans go to uh, Florence all the time and visit, if they can find it, the David inside the museum. And then there's at least a couple copies of the David outside in Florence that you just run into. And the two clips I've got here, one is, is the second is a rather lengthy, well, it's a 20 minute biography of Michelangelo that's done very well. But then there's a little Ted clip and I've come to really appreciate and enjoy Ted talks, but this is a very short Ted clip. It's only a few minutes and I, and I highly recommend you watch it about the many meanings of this sculpture. And that can explain it far better than I can on this slide for sure. 
Now, slide 13, we're moving ahead to Michelangelo's Moses, which is a seated statue. Why does everybody seemingly in Western civilization imagine the Christian God and even um, the ancient Greek Zeus as this older gentleman with long flowing beard and long locks, kind of gray hair with this sort of fierce stare? Uh, Michelangelo seems to set the mold that everybody else's imagination picks up in so many different venues and vehicles in the centuries since. Um, he's got horns, Michelangelo's Moses. Uh, I'm not going to give away what they're about because when you're studying Michelangelo's Moses, I want you to teach us about those horns. Um, and I don't want to spoil it for you, a fascinating detail. Moses is an old man sitting here, but Michelangelo can't avoid it. He loves to show whether it's God on the, in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or Moses seated here. He loves to show the masculine form in its most powerful positions of authority. It's a theme that he likes to pick up in his, in his work, whether it's three-dimensional or two-dimensional. The Pieta... Look, Sister Wendy is a nun who knows a ton about art. I've got a couple clips of hers in this lecture. And if you see a Sister Wendy clip, please watch it. She goes into some wonderful detail in her explanation of Michelangelo's Pieta, which before COVID, you know, I had students, you know, at least one student would be draped across the other student playing Mary in like a, a, in a dramatic Pieta this year. And, you know, for the foreseeable future, COVID doesn't allow that. But the Pieta, the human sculpture garden is always very dramatic. And it's one of the most beautiful presentations of the human form that Michelangelo was able to set forth. And this is a genre of sculpture Michelangelo took a crack at it. Lots of other sculptures have as well. The Pieta is the Virgin Mary holding the lifeless form of Jesus Christ uh, after his crucifixion. We're not going to be getting into two-dimensional art too much in this little mini unit on the Renaissance. I included the creation of Adam from the Sistine Chapel to show you as a comparison piece Michelangelo's um, God the Father up on the Sistine Chapel as compared to his Moses seated in the sculpture. They have many commonalities. Sandra Botticelli, again, not that much two-dimensional art. If students want to take a stab at um, presenting this in a human sculpture garden, I've been open to it in the past. But as I've explained in the class, you know, with COVID, you can see here, you know, we've got... I think it's Boreas, the West Wind, there with his companion. And then one of the newly born Venus's attendants on the right, maybe one of the Graces, I don't know. But she's coming in on the scallop shell, the same scallop shell I was wearing all week. Not the same one, but a scallop shell, similar to the one I was wearing this week in school. Um, the great symbol from the pilgrimage to Santiago de Copatella, um, highly symbolic piece. Anyway, Venus is coming in born out of the foam. Botticelli is a little bit later in the Renaissance class. That's why I'm, I'm 
presented this to you in the in the lecture. Also, Sister Wendy's talking about this painting as well. And the farther we go into the Renaissance, early, mid to late Renaissance, when we're in the late Renaissance, as we are with Sandra Botticelli, you know, the more cool, the more chill everybody is with non-Christian themes, with pagan themes, classical themes, mythological themes. You don't have to paint everything from the Bible. Um, you can branch out, and this is what Botticelli does here, famously in The Birth of Venus. Uh, Leonardo, the look, I, there's an intersection here, class, between the birth of science and the birth of modern art or the rebirth of interest in humanity, interest in the human form. Leonardo da Vinci famously uh, had ideas and sketches for lots of different things, including submarines and machine guns, flying devices. Uh, he wasn't able to get any of them really to work in his lifetime, but he was a famous tinkerer, along with being a great painter and artist. And an animal, animal rights activist as well. He's a vegetarian. Um, back in the fifteenth cent, back in the fifteenth century, he was already a vegetarian, animal rights activist. When he was a little boy, apparently, in the farmers' market, he would buy caged birds and set them free, just to see them fly away. Raphael, you read about in Spielvogel's World History textbook, and again, um, we're not going too much into two-dimensional art, but I did want to uh, show you at least here um, the School of Athens, a really famous painting. Okay, now for your assignment, Machiavelli and the Prince. Uh, that's explained on the course website. There's just a page from Spielvogel on Niccolo Machiavelli. Now, Machiavelli is not an artist, unless you count political science as an art. Um, but he's a he's a figure of the Renaissance, who's among the first modern political theorists who develops ideas on how to govern outside of Christian morality. So he liberates a lot of the political figures of the time from ideas of the Middle Ages that are very closely associated with good and evil. He he's kind of sets that aside. He says, yeah, good, evil, I got you. But what what I'm selling here is that the ends justify the means. If the end is important, it doesn't really matter how terrible the means are that you use, so long as you achieve your ends. In his famous work, The Prince, you know, he was constantly telling princes things like, listen, it's better to be feared than to be loved. Um, don't mess around. <laughs> you know? uh, you're going to read a little bit about Machiavelli and you're gonna look at this cartoon uh, which is a which is a pretty great one, and anybody's listening to the podcast, you can just Google this, and it's a really fun New Yorker cartoon, and it has this a group of school children with their Machiavelli school banner, and they've got their binoculars out, and they're they're scouting out the um the local Montessori school, uh, so it's great fun. You're going to use the National Archives cartoon analysis worksheet to break down the meaning of this particular cartoon. Okay. Throughout these slides, you've seen their YouTube clips. Um, none of them are mandatory, but you will find some of them useful, particularly the ones on Donatello and Michelangelo, if you're doing sculptures by either of these artists for the Human Sculpture Garden. Uh, if you have any questions, of course, 
um, feel free to email me. Uh, thank you so much. And I'll see you guys in class. Thank you.